0: Hello and welcome to the Aged Care Enrichment, or ACE, podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Every fortnight, we invite aged care industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share their knowledge and experience with us as we examine ways to improve the quality of care and the quality of life for seniors. I'm your host, Ash and our guest today is Julianne Parkinson. Julianne is the CEO of the Global Centre for Modern Ageing, A not-for-profit that helps organisations and individuals devise products and services that allow older people to live and age well. Through their life lab they partner with volunteers in simulated environments to help discover what things really make a difference to the lives of elderly Australians. Julianne comes to this interview armed with fresh research about how older Australians are adapting to the COVID pandemic and we go in-depth on some ways to smooth the transitions between care in the home and life in aged care facilities. There's a lot covered here, so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Julianne Parkinson. All right, thank you so much for joining us, Julianne, on the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Ashley. Thank you.
0: Can we start with a bit of background about yourself?
1: Yes, certainly. Um, I've lived all over Australia, raised a family and in my professional life I've always been interested in how um, humans can be uh, growing themselves as individuals but also how we can grow economies and societies at the same time. Whilst I've been living here in South Australia uh, we've been seeing this emergence of the importance of the ageing phenomenon and what it meant to society here in Australia and overseas and also what it could mean to business and governments if we were to understand people as we age through all of life's course and how we can make a difference by sharing that that evidence-based understanding in ways that bring innovation and change to improve people's lives throughout all of life's course.
0: Fantastic. That sounds uh, very linked to your work with the Global Centre for Modern Ageing. What is the Global Centre for Modern Ageing?
1: Well, the Global Centre for Modern Ageing is a not-for-profit organisation and we exist uh, for the very reasons I've just described to you, Ashley. You know, understanding the way in which people are changing the way they wish to live their lives in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond Um, realising that an extended longevity is part of life, uh, but also understanding that we're not necessarily living better. And so we want to bring evidence and understanding that allow, and and almost to be the conduit, I guess, as an organisation with our research platform and our co-design capability uh, that is internationally accredited to allow um, older people to work alongside research partners, entrepreneurs, organisations, not-for-profits and governments, to imagine how they would like to live their life going forward and what products or services we should um, invent from this moment on, be them adaptations of existing products or services or brand new ways of thinking that we bring to the market in order to allow people to have two things, better choice by the way in which they decide how they will spend their day, participate in life, contribute to society and at the same time be supported and the breadth of choices. So Improve the quality of the choices and the breadth of the choices, but all informed by the very people who are wanting to live their lives differently.
0: Wow, that's fantastic! That seems like a really important element that can often be missing in the the creation of new services and new products. Would you agree that it's the work that the Global Centre for Modern Aging does is primarily research based?
1: We certainly use research and evidence to inform the basis of everything that we do, but always co-designed and with the older person at the forefront. That said, we do appreciate that life is intergenerational and humanity at its best is when it acts as a holistic community. So we're not limited with the work that we do to purely older people, but it is the centricity of older people that we have at the forefront of our work. And with you know the emergence of the growing numbers of population, both in Australia, ASEAN, and indeed globally, what better investment can we be making in society and in the economy than to get this right?
0: Absolutely. And um, just before we we started recording, you were mentioning the Life Lab, you're heading down there today. What, what is the Life Lab?
1: Thank you. Well, the, the Life Lab um, is a set of processes and methodologies in a form, a physical place as well. Which allows us a safe, independent platform by which to test, validate, trial products and services existing and future ideas to um, inform better product development in, into the future. The Life Lab itself is a simulated studio, which we have based at the Tonsley Innovation Precinct here in South Australia. It's one of the leading innovation precincts worldwide. And our research actually encouraged us to base that facility there so that we could support Australian entrepreneurs and governments and and people, citizens, um, to have a safe place in order to carry out um, trialling, testing and validation. Often, as you'd appreciate, Ashley, you know, where we need products to work is in real life settings, right? Mm. That's where life takes place. So our work takes place in various forms, but the simulated studio, which has cameras and sensors and allows us to store and record people's nonverbal and verbal responses to the experiences they're having with a particular product or service, or even the notion of a new product or service, to help inform that development. Um, the Tonsley Precinct has innovation status, which allows us to do some testing in a safe and well-governed way, but that it wouldn't be allowed in a normally regulated spot. So by way of example, four or five years ago now, uh, Tonsley Innovation Precinct had autonomous vehicles being trialled there well before, uh, as we're seeing them now trialled in community and townships um, and cities. So it's at the leading edge, if you like, to allow that innovation to accelerate through smart iterations of co-design and development.
0: Awesome. So this sounds like a, a lot of uh, a lot of the co-designing opportunities are coming through the Life Lab. Then,
1: well, certainly it's almost our front door, uh, be it via Zoom meetings, uh, mm-hmm. such as the one we're having today, or uh, or teleconferences, and certainly face to face visits when we're in different years that aren't as COVID influences right now. And we can theme the simulated studio however we want. We have a fully working kitchen, which allows us to not just imagine, but work through the practicalities of working with food and its relationship to packaging, to the marketing to tools and equipment in the kitchen that allow us to get on with living our lives independently. But we're also able to theme the the space um, entirely neutral and then create environments, a workplace of tomorrow, bedrooms of tomorrow, homes of tomorrow, uh, doctor surgeries of tomorrow, all sorts of spaces and places that reflect real life environments.
0: Wow, it's, it's exciting to imagine the potential of that sort of space and, and having a, a dedicated environment which you can trial new things in.
1: Well, absolutely, and and one of the dedicated um, nuances of what we have is the night vision mm. that we have with our cameras and sensors. So, as we know, people are wanting to live at home for as long as they can, stay independent as they can for as long as possible, and to be supported as to think to be cared for necessarily. Um, and where support meets care, what's that transition? And then to full care, what does that look like? So we're fascinated by the transition points that all of us go through as humans, and not that age is necessarily the reason we transition, Life events make us transition. The moment you trip and fall and you're in a moon boot, um, the moment you have a newborn and you're navigating a pram or you're the grandmother navigating the pram, all of those circumstances in life uh, create changes where we need to adapt ourselves and hopefully with products or services that enable us to live the way we, we intend to. Uh, but this life lab with the, um, that space really does provide a safe house, a well-governed house, an evidence-based house, to inform when we do conduct trials in real-life settings, what were some of the glitches that we might want to narrow down or avoid as a result of those early trials. So it brings more confidence to the real-life trials. And it's certainly fabulous for uh, products that are in prototype stage and Mm. people are wanting to test and iterate all sorts of aspects, be them uh, technology-enabled products or services or raw training that might be given by a carer to a resident of an aged-care home Really there's no limit to the way in which we can utilise the space to inform the future.
0: To give the listeners an idea of the kinds of things that you can trial in there, do you have any, any things that have been trialled recently in the Life Lab?
1: Oh, sure. Look, we've had some fantastic projects. And, and I think what's important here, Ashley, is the quality of the co-designers. So it's the very people who are part of our community. We have a global centre for modern ageing community of, of co-designers, predominantly older people, but not only, who put their hands up to be parts of trials um, of varying types and persuasions. A terrific one that comes to mind was a, an entrepreneur who'd created a physiotherapy rehabilitation device at the time designed for high-performance athletes to, you know, recover from, uh, from injuries or sporting ailments and get back on field. It was to support them and their sports physiotherapists. Mm. This particular entrepreneur realised that there are a lot more older people on the planet than high-performance athletes, and if he were to take his product and adapt it through a co-design process What could be the possibilities? And that was a tremendous project to work through. In fact, what was most interesting uh, when we ran that project through the Life Lab with the entrepreneur, their research partner, and also the co-designers themselves, people, older people, he was fascinated as an entrepreneur to learn that he really didn't need to change too many aspects of his product at all. So one of the things about our work isn't always that you need to make excessive changes to things. What our platform does do, though, is provide the evidence and the confidence that the changes you make will be in line with the sorts of desires of the experience your ultimate end customer or end user would want. That's one example. And since then, that entrepreneur has shifted his business strategy, which is now, I believe, entirely focused on creating products and services for the older people market. So he's now got more other projects in research and development. So it sends a signal to Australian businesses about older people being a very important consumer base, a wealth of importance to understand, clearly understand. And when you create products or services with those people helping you guide that direction of the development, the benefits can be, you know, numerous, almost too too many to mention.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you guys are very well positioned between policy and private enterprise and innovation, and also, like you said, creating awareness that there is a market there for elder people to, uh, to engage in products and, and that maybe there's more potential than I originally thought. We're recording this interview in late August 2020, and uh, there is this pandemic going on and I think the Global Centre for Modern Aging has done some quite a bit of research throughout the pandemic. Is that right, Julianne?
1: Oh, look, we have, and and, and like many others around the globe, we were concerned and yet at the same time fascinated by what the COVID-19 pandemic meant to people. And as an organisation, we invested quite quickly in seeking to understand that in the context of Australians living at home. In fact, we've undertaken to date a study during COVID that's been running since March in sort of six or eight week increments reaching um over uh, between 1200 and 1300 people's homes in australia of people aged over the age of 18 ashley as i said we we are interested in older people but we love to see that in the context of how it's in, you know affecting society and we were keen to understand what's been changing for people during that time. Uh, and as recently as I think our next re- report is due out, you know, by the end of this week. So that will be the latest one available mm. on our website, all publicly available, all free to assist um, society to understand. But some remarkable insights have come from that work.
0: Yeah. Can you give us a little teaser of some of the insights that, that you found?
1: Sure. Well, I, look, I, I think, you know, at the outset, it's fair to say that older people have shown resounding resilience during this period of time. Um, despite often being older people at the centre of the concern, uh, as we saw with the high-risk categories um, early on, and, 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 and that's remained the case, not the only category clearly, but a concerning one that we needed to keep safe. Of course, one of the positive things we saw from that is that um, during the pandemic, as in the, through the eyes of um, people who completed the survey, they were really buoyed by the community involvement and outreach that citizens gave each other to support and care for, whether it's your neighbour, the the extended use of um, making contact with friends and family and reaching out in ways that people didn't normally take time for or have the mindfulness and the thoughtfulness to do. So they brought a great deal of confidence that this pandemic, as, as dire and serious as, as it is, was bringing some, what we called a silver lining to the Mm. equation um, here in Australia. And certainly these stories are are replicated, as we've seen in news um, around the world and media. Um, So we're not limited to this good, positive aspect of the response to COVID. What we also saw was just this increase in the comfort and the use of technology. And can I just say, older people really have been leading the charge in this regard. We found it so interesting that that really formed the, the, the depth of our second form of inquiry, where we wanted to understand what's happening behind the doors of people in their homes, Mm. of respondents um, that had used telehealth since the COVID outbreak. 84% rated their overall telehealth experience either the same or better than face to face consultations. So this satisfaction was higher uh, when telehealth was with respondents regular doctor though. But the, the overwhelming evidence was that people were comfortable with or found it you know, the same or better than the ability to log on in you know, over 85% of cases and the privacy that pertained to that from their perspective for mm. their consults. And they were with doctors, they were with allied health specialists, um, there were some mental health visitations as well. Some of these were by phone and some of them by um, video conference such as Zoom. Fair to say that there was um, more uptake with phone than with video, but it's also fair to say that the the confidence that came from the video conference, the face-to-face was really interesting. Now, now we know this was undertaken during a period where people were asked to stay home, not to get on buses and visit their hospitals. Surgeries were asking people to, you know, um, limit some of the visitations in person. So we're also interested in understanding as the pandemic may lift in the future, other health choices of, you know, creating or gaining your health care and advice will be opened up again. Where does telehealth fit as a legitimate part in the blend that suits the patient, their carer and family members? And equally, the clinician or their health provider because it's important that this technology platform serves both parties to make sure that the healthcare experience is the right one for the patient each and every time.
0: Yeah, I can see that there's a lot of opportunity now. Now that you have some data on how telehealth is being received, it seems like it could be reimagined its position as a uh, a viable alternative to a face-to-face visit?
1: Well, certainly can be a healthy alternative on the right occasions, Um, but we'd also acknowledge that there are times where it's not,
0: Mm. you know,
1: a replacement for the face-to-face visit. So we're certainly not asking it to replace, but certainly uh, it it could extend the offerings of the way in which people consume. Of course, our regional listeners would be very aware of this. Um, Telehealth Mm. is pioneered out in the regions by the sake of necessity. Just, I guess, in the same vein, necessity of the COVID restrictions forced us to think about new frontiers, even if your doctor's surgery is 150 metres from your home, not 1,500 kilometres from your home.
0: So, Julianne, another paper that the Global Centre released called Ageing in the Right Place found that 8 out of 10 people wanted to remain in their current home as long as possible. What are some challenges that arise through that?
1: Well, there is a near universal desire for people to age in their own homes wherever possible. It doesn't mean that they don't want to improve or refit and repurpose their home in order to make it meet those needs. But as we know, age is one determinant, but not the only one. That There are many points and transitions in life, as we mentioned earlier, that trigger and signal the need to change maybe your physical place. But most people are not proactively modifying their homes in preparation. Most of the modifications actually occur under duress, you know, like after an accident or an incident. So decisions can be rushed. Um, There are opportunities for builders, designers and architects to specialise in the provision of that at home, which is really in that growth sector of both people living independently at home, people living in residential villages and people living in aged care societies or communities as well. What we saw was important to people was um, a term that we coined whilst undertaking this research and finding the insights was the term of house, home and haven. And that for many people, they have a pragmatic space um, that you might call your house, the physical form that provides you shelter and um, some levels of safety. But over time, when we live in a space that becomes our own and we make our own, the experiences that we have in that home, the joys, sometimes the adversities, but it becomes more of a home and we have a collection of things around us that remind us of where we've been and where we are And then we can really transcend into a haven-like space, which really is the sanctuary, you know, the space in which we really want to live. And one of the things that happened through this large, expansive project that we ran called Ageing in the Right Place was people um, explaining to us and providing insights that this notion of house, home and haven can be in many forms. This wasn't a group of highly uh, wealthy, privileged individuals, nor was it a group of very socially, economically, struggling individuals, it was a blend of uh, people who responded to it. And there were people who owned their home and there were people who rented their home and we had no idea whether people had mortgages or not. So this really was a primal response to how individuals would seek to live their life. And we've been working with this research to try and um, support people who are responsible for creating the spaces and places in which we live, to allow them to understand that not all of this is about large infrastructure spend. You know, you can live in quite a grand place and have loneliness and isolation and not mm. a feeling of well-being. and you can live in a far more modest dwelling and have that true tranquility. So the essence of this is thoughtfulness and understanding of what the needs are for that person now and into the future and how to assemble the support, the products, the services in the form that allow us to have that. So we use this work to illustrate the expansiveness of what's possible in areas where the product development uh, industry hasn't really gone before. But if we talk about ensuring that people have great places to live, participate in life and engage, you know, throughout all of life's course, this is definitely a growth and undernourished sector um, to be understood and one that we'd like to help inform. It's not just the space, it's the precinct and the areas around it. And so, you know, that's where the community steps in to the fray for this very important conversation.
0: Yeah, you you touched on something early in, in that about a lot of decisions are made quickly and under duress in response to perhaps a fall or an incident and that perhaps better decisions will be made if they're made proactively. Do you think that there needs to be a change in kind of the thinking around these changes so that it's more acceptable to think about home modifications before they become necessary?
1: Oh, absolutely, 100%. You know, this is part of life planning and when we mm-hmm. say that, you know, people often immediately go to life planning and meaning financial planning, but we see it more holistically than that. We do see the importance of understanding your wellness and your well-being agenda, what you're prepared and, and able to do to help self-regulate yourself and, and and stay as well as you can. That's the best way to live a good life, is the preventative where possible. But of course we have to take into account, you know, the importance and the natural aspects that can come with chronic diseases as well as part of Um, life as we age and other aspects. So we want people to be assisted with ways to think through their life planning, um, which takes into account the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the intellectual and the environmental, and then to help people help form their futures going forward. That's why we're very happy to be working with younger generations on proactive wellness initiatives as well. So there's an intergenerational uplift. We're not really only interested in the next few years, which of course is important to us, the commitment to citizens as they're aging right now. But we have, you know, a long-term vision, you know, decades into the future to be supporting people as they age throughout all of life's course.
0: Wow. Yeah. It sounds like the scope is, is as you said, multiple times now, but the scope is massive that you have an opportunity to change the way that people think about aging and the way that people think about planning for their lives. And, and it, it sounds like the steps that the Global Centre is putting in with younger generations are going to sow seeds for, for the future.
1: Well, we hope to be part of a much broader collaboration of um, the ecosystem to help make this happen. Mm. But absolutely, that's our intention. We always try to encourage intergenerational responses. You know, we, we can think about aspects like um, mental wellness and well-being, And, um, you know, we see some, you know, dramatic and alarming numbers and, and narratives happening for older people. But equally, and unfortunately, there is no age determinant here. You know, we see youth and suicide as increasing, and how do we assemble the wisdom and the sageness of older people to support younger people? So playing a really, you know, these are leadership roles. This isn't about older people always being the recipient of other people's care and support, mm. though that's helpful. It's good if we're intergenerational in this. Um, but it's also the leadership roles that we can play, participating in life, not to be taking leadership away from people at the very time where they've got the most to offer. You know, they've walked down this path longer than anyone else and they've learned a lot on the way and many are prepared to share their wisdom and their point of view and many are seeking someone wise to listen to. One of the aspects about improving people's lives as we age is workforce engagement and volunteering. So workforce engagement and transitions and that you know society has so long we've had this fixed term about retirement which really doesn't do many people justice if anyone at all. How do we allow people to stay actively engaged in ways paid and unpaid that are meaningful and purposeful to that individual and also to society? Too often, from what we see at the Global Centre for Modern Ageing, the disconnect between product development of new products and services for people as consumers rests in part because the organisations themselves do not have people of the age and the persuasion of the very consumers they're seeking to make. So be it financial services, um, where you've asked people to retire at a particular age and yet your consumers are living well into their 90s and they're into, um, you know, into their hundreds, if we had more representation. So we talk about diversity in the workplace, but the one that is least understood and the least spoken about is ageism. And it permeates in a way that I think is dangerously pervasive to the way in which we view each other and we shame our future selves when we talk about how we age. So having an open door to and a freeness that boards and their managements will think differently about the age diversity that we bring in alongside gender and race and the other important um, parts of the mix, I think will do a lot for improving the way in which organisations naturally think about their consumer base in the future.
0: That's fantastic. If we jump back to the ageing in the right place paper, there's another piece of um, evidence in here that only 5% of surveyed respondents would consider moving into an aged care facility if they needed help. What do you think this says about aged care facilities and what can aged care providers do to address this?
1: Oh, well, I think, you know, it's, it's essentially more to do with it's one of those other most significant transitions in life where, um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, these happen at times of, of a critical incident. And so at some level as an individual, you know, they can be, you know, perhaps a grudge transition. Nobody, you know, necessarily walks towards wanting to necessarily have to do that.
0: Do you think there's a way to change the appreciation of aged care facilities instead of something that might have to happen to be something that's exciting for people who are ageing?
1: Oh, look, I I think it can be meaningful in many ways when it's done well, right? So I think there's already examples of that. But what I think what we're seeing is um, possibly the trend and what we're seeing is that, you know, people are wanting to stay at home for longer. So I think what we'll see is more of a growth in the ability to bring better products or services and adapt those homes accordingly to allow people to age in their own homes for longer than we've ever done before. Um, And perhaps in in some of the community settings as well, allow people to stay in settings there with better products and services. And technology can be part of helping to monitor our health in that regard, Um, but not limited to that. It'll be carers and services into the home. So I think you'll see a growth. I certainly am not suggesting that Age care um, and residential aged care isn't playing a, a necessary role. It certainly plays a very important role. But the improvements to it, I think, could be informed by some of the changes we're going to be seeing down the line a bit earlier as people are wanting to age at home. So I think there'll be less linear progression there. And I also think people will have uh, moments and transitions where you might go to a, an area of supported care, higher level of supported care, which we're already seeing in Australia, for a period of time while you rehabilitate, and then you might return back to your home. So, you know, less of that linear gate you're going through, one gate of living into the next phase and then the next and then that's it. I think we'll see a more Mm -hmm. fluid relationship and that will be through the investment of providers, government and the organisations and the entrepreneurs who aren't operating in this space yet, uh, but who will be in the
0: future. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. It shows it doesn't need to be a binary situation between living in your home and living in a care facility. but the lines can be blurred; it become grey areas, and we can take the best of both worlds. Whether that's aspects from the home into the aged care facility, or aspects of care into the home, and moving forward, it sounds like the the research that the global center has found supports that idea that it's it's less of a, a cut and dry. Now you're in a home; it's more of a it's more of a uh, as you said, a fluid approach. What are some trends you're beginning to see in new products and services within the aged care industry, or within the care industry for for elderly Australians?
1: There's a lot of innovation that uh, will have application to both the home and in residential care, as we spoke about earlier. That's our belief. Uh, for example, devices that collect health data and transmit it to a central point, enabling artificial intelligence to identify the level of direct healthcare intervention required. Um, healthcare becomes about the analysis, preemptive management, and the physical consultation when, when required. There are some exciting developments in assistive technologies and robotics for simply helping carers with things as, as important but as simple as heavy the heavy lifting that's required in aged care. So we're seeing it in um, sensory, we'll be seeing it in um, new food um, products and innovations, we'll be seeing it in uh, access and mobility um, and to help people, as I've mentioned earlier, passive sensors to help monitor people's wellness in the home to make sure that if others aren't around that they're in a good space, so to speak.
0: Julian, we've covered so much stuff in this conversation, and I just have one more question before we go. Um, You have a quote very front and center on your LinkedIn page that says, what if the great achievement of longevity is not a longer old age, but a longer midlife? What does that quote mean to you?
1: Well, it means a lot to me. Um, And what I mean by it is that in our midlife, we give ourselves permission and we give ourselves expectation just as we did in earlier stages of life. We set ourselves plans. We set ourselves goals. We set ourselves permission to make investment in ourselves, to improve ourselves, to make sure that our relationships are of the value and of the health, if I can use that term, that's rightful for both you and the other parties as part of those relationships, be them in your personal lives or your professional lives. We invest in our wellness. We don't stop having aspiration, around what our future could be. We realise that we bring our own efforts and our wherewithal to the table, but that we can learn and grow to support those future endeavours. And we're mindful of how we should and could be supporting others who are in their midlife journey and wanting to develop themselves. And I use it because the end of life is there for all of us. It's just Life is there from the beginning to the final destination of time in this form that we know it, but that doesn't mean that we can't continue to grow and nurture ourselves and grow and nurture others alongside us. And I'd hate to think that at any point a birthday or potentially a a significant transition in our lives, which are all going to happen if we continue to live, those things won't be taken off the table. They will happen into the future if we live. How do we still allow ourselves to grow and importantly look out around us and to see others around the globe to encourage them, support them to grow? And so I'm really taken by the wonderful models of people who are living. I see people at 89 showing an amazing midlife at the moment. I see the way they invest in their friends, having their friends over, engaging and supporting their their contacts and, and continuing to learn in their own way. So they share, they develop and they extend what they know to others. I I was with somebody just on Saturday watching the footy actually with her at her home, 89 years old, and and a glowing exemplar in my mind of a woman completely in the throes of her midlife. and, And therefore, that mindset allows that to happen. And I think, you know, the end of life will come for us all. And as it comes, you know, we want to look back and say, did we give ourselves permission And did government, society around us support us in our decision to live the very life we wanted to live on our terms and in our time? And I want that for everyone around the globe. And I feel that that responsibility utterly rests with organisations like the Global Centre for Modern Ageing and many others, um, governments large and small, organisations large and small, not-for-profits and humanity to get together to support the consciousness and the mindset of how powerful that can be.
0: Where can people find out more of all the things we've been talking about today?
1: Oh, sure. Look, we'd love people to jump on our website at the gcma.net.au. Sign up if you'd like to um, receive GCMA research. Sign up if you want to be a co-designer. We're fortunate that 3,300 people have organically just joined us in the last couple of years. All of these people are interested in two things. One, the curiosity to understand modern ageing better, and for many, now the investment of changing the way they live to encourage a more inclusive future where older people are at the centre of all of the positive that is ahead of us all.
0: Fantastic, Julian. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Such a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast brought to you by Silver Adventures. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website at www.silveradventures.com.au That's S-I-L-V-R Adventures. And of course, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out on the next one. My name's Ashton Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.